10, aside and disappeared. I was looking toward the river just as the tiger sprang upon him, and so were two of the natives, we all uttered a cry of astonishment, and were struck motionless for an instant, though only for an instant. The unfortunate man did not struggle with the beast, and as the latter did not stop to do more than seize him, I suspected that the fright and suddenness of the attack had caused a fainting fit. I and my Russian companion seized our rifles, and the natives their spears, and started in pursuit. We tracked the tiger through the underbrush, partly by the marks left by his feet, but mainly by the drops of blood that had fallen from his victim. Going over a ridge, we lost the trail, and though we spread out and searched very carefully, it was nearly an hour before we could resume the pursuit. Every minute seemed an age, as we well knew that the tiger would thus gain time to devour his prey. Probably I was less agitated than the natives, but I freely and gladly admit that I have never had my nerves more unstrung than on that occasion, though I have been in much greater peril. We searched through several clumps of bushes, and examined several thickets, in the hope of finding where the tiger had concealed himself. The natives approached all these thickets with fear and trembling, so that most of the searching was done by the Russian members of the party, just as we were beating around a little clump of bushes. 15 or 20 yards across. My companion on the other side shouted, Look out, the tiger is preparing to spring upon you. Instantly I cocked my rifle and fired into the bushes, they were so dense that I could hardly discern the outline of the beast, who had me in full view, and was crouching preparatory to making a leap. I called to my friend to shoot, as the density of the thicket made it very probable that my fire would be lost. By the ball glancing among the shrubbery, but my friend was in the same predicament, and I quickly formed a plan of operations. We were both good shots, and I thought our safety lay in killing the beast as he rose in the air, aiming at his head. I stepped slowly backward, and shouted to my friend to cover the tiger and shoot as he sprang. All this occurred in less time than I tell of it. Hardly had I stepped two paces backward when the tiger leaped toward me. As he rose, his throat was exposed for a moment and I planted a bullet in his breast. Simultaneously a ball from the other rifle struck his side. We fired so closely together that neither of us heard the report of the other's weapon. The tiger gave a roar of agony, and despite the wounds he received, either of which would have been fatal, he completed his spring so nearly that he caught me by the foot and inflicted a wound that landed me for several months, and left permanent scars. The natives, hearing the report of our rifles, came to our assistance and so great was their reverence for the tiger, that they prostrated themselves before his quivering body, and muttered some words which I could not understand, though assured that the beast was dead, they hesitated to enter the thicket to search for the body of their companion, and it was only on my leading the way that they entered it, we found the remains of the poor native somewhat mutilated, though less so than I expected, there was no trace of suffering upon his features, and I was confirmed in my theory that he fainted the moment he was seized, and was not conscious afterward. His friends insisted upon burying the body where they found it, and said it was their custom to do so. They piled logs above the grave, and after the observance of certain pagan rites, to secure the repose of the deceased, they signified their readiness to proceed. The tiger was one of the largest of his kind. I had his skin carefully removed and sent it with my official report to St. Petersburg. A Chinese Mandarin who met me near Lake Hinka offered me a high price for the skin, but I declined his offer, in order to show our emperor what his Siberian possessions contained. Chapter XBI 
On the morning of September 28th we arrived at Ekaterinikolskoy, a flourishing settlement, said to contain nearly 300 houses. It stood on a plateau 40 feet above the river, and was the best appearing village I had seen since leaving Hodorovka. The people that gathered on the bank were comfortably clad and evidently well federal, but I could not help wondering how so many could leave their labor to look at a steamboat. The country was considered excellent for agriculture, yielding abundantly all the grains that had been tried. On the Amur the country below Goran belongs to the Maritime Province, which has its capital at Nikolaevsk. Above Goran is the province of the Amur, controlled by the governorate Blagoveshchensk. In the Maritime Province the settlers are generally of the civilian or peasant class, while in the Amur Province they are mostly Cossacks. The latter depend more upon themselves than the former and I was told that this was one cause of their prosperity. Many peasants in the maritime province do not raise enough flour for their own use, and rely upon government when there is a deficiency. It is my opinion that the emperor does too much for some of his subjects in the eastern part of his dominions. In Kamchatka and along the coast of the Okhotsk Sea the people are supplied with flour at a low price or for nothing, a ship coming annually to bring it. It has been demonstrated that agriculture is possible in Kamchatka. When I asked why rye was not raised there, one reply was, we get our flour from government, and have no occasion to make it. Now if the government would furnish the proper facilities for commencing agriculture, and then throw the inhabitants on their own resources, I think it would make a decided change for the better. A self-reliant population is always the best. Some of the colonists on the Amor went there of their own accord, induced by liberal donations of land and materials while others were removed by official orders. In Siberia the government can transfer a population at its will. A whole village may be commanded to move ten, a hundred, or a thousand miles, and it has only to obey. The people gather their property, take their flocks and herds, and move where commanded. They are reimbursed for losses in changing their residence, and the expense of new houses is borne by government. A community may be moved from one place to another and the settlers find themselves surrounded by their former neighbors. The Cossacks are moved oftener than the peasants, as they are more directly subject to orders. I found the Cossack villages on the Amor were generally laid out with military precision, the streets where the ground permitted being straight as sunbeams, and the houses of equal size. Usually each house had a small yard or flower garden in its front, but it was not always carefully tended. Every village has a chief or headman who assigns each man his location and watches over the general good of his people. When Cossacks are demanded for government service the headman makes the selection, and all cases of insubordination or dispute are regulated by him. A Cossack is half soldier and half citizen. He owes a certain amount of service to the government, and is required to labor for it a given number of days in the year. He may be called to travel as escort to the mail or to an officer, to watch over public property, to row a boat construct a house, or perform any other duty in his power. In case of war he becomes a soldier and is sent wherever required. As a servant of government he receives rations for himself and family, but I believe he is not paid in money. The time belonging to himself he can devote to agriculture or any other employment he chooses. The Cossacks reside with their families, and some of them acquire considerable property. A Russian officer told me there were many wealthy Cossacks along the Argun River on the boundary between Russia and China. They trade across the frontier, and own large droves of cattle, horses, and sheep. 
Some of their houses are spacious and fitted with considerable attempt at luxury. The Anwar settlements are at present too young to possess much wealth. Soon after leaving Ekater and Nikolskoy we entered the Barrier Hingon Mountains. This chain extends across the valley of the Anwar at nearly right angles, and the river flows through it in a single narrow defile. The mountains first reach the river on the northern bank, the Chinese shore continuing low for 13 miles higher up. There are no islands, and the river, narrowed to about half a mile, flows with a rapid current. In some places it runs 5 miles an hour, and its depth is from 50 to 100 feet. The mountains come to the river on either bank, sometimes in precipitous cliffs, but generally in regular slopes. Their elevation is about a thousand feet, and they are covered to their summits with dense forests of fallifrous and coniferous trees. Occasionally the slopes are rocky or covered with loose debris that does not give clinging room to the trees. The undergrowth is dense, and everything indicates a good vegetation. The mountains are of mica schist, clay slate, and rocks of similar origin resting upon an axis of granite. Porphyry has been found in one locality. According to the geologists there are indications of gold and other precious metals, and I would not be surprised if a thorough exploration led to valuable discoveries. As the boat struggled against the current in this mountain passage I spent most of the time on deck. The tortuous course of the river added much to the scenic effect. Almost every minute the picture changed. Hill, forest, cliff, and valley assumed different aspects as we wound our sinuous way up the defile. Here and there were tiny cascades breaking over the steep rocks to the edge of the river, and occasionally a little meadow peeped out from the mountain valleys. Some features of the scenery reminded me of the highlands of the Hudson, or the Mississippi above Lake Pepin. At times we seemed completely enclosed in a lake from which there was no escape save by climbing the hills. Frequently it was impossible to discover any trace of an opening half a mile in our front. Had we been ascending an unexplored river I should have half expected to find it issuing like a huge spring from the base of a high mountain. The Russian villages in these mountains are located in the valleys of streams flowing to the Anor. In one bend we found a solitary house newly erected and waiting its occupants who should keep the post station in winter. We sent a Cossack ashore in a skiff at this point, and he came near falling into the river while descending the steps at the steamer's side. While returning from the bank one of the men in the skiff broke an oar and fell overboard, which obliged us to back the steamer nearly half a mile down the river to pick him up. The unlucky individual was arrayed in the only suit of clothes he possessed, and was hung up to dry in the engine room. A mile above this landing place we passed two manger boats ascending the stream. These boats were each about 20 feet long, sitting low in the water with the bow more elevated than the stern, and had a mast in the center for carrying a small sail. In the first boat I counted six men, four pushing with poles, one steering, and the sixth, evidently the proprietor, lying at ease on the baggage, where the nature of the ground permits the crew walk along the shore and tow the boat. The men were in cotton garments and conical hats, and their cues of hair hung like ship's pennants in a dead calm, or the tails of a group of scared dogs. They seemed to enjoy themselves, and were laughing merrily as we went past them. They waved their hands up the stream as if urging us to go ahead and say they were coming. The one reclining was a venerable personage, with a thin beard fringing a sedate visage, into which he drew long whiffs and comfort from a Chinese pipe. These boats were doubtless from Kirin or Sansin, on their way to Iboon. The voyage must be a tedious one to any but a Mongol, much like the navigation of the Mississippi before the days of steamboats. 
in spite of the great advantages to commerce, the managers resisted to the last the introduction of steam on the Amur just as they now oppose it on the Songaree. In the language of the natives along its banks the Amur has several names. The Chinese formerly called the Songaree Kutong, and considered the lower Amur part of that stream. Above the Songaree the Amur was called Sakhalinola, Black Water, by the managers and Chinese. The Golds named it Mongo, and the Gilyaks called it Mamu. The name Amur was given by the Russians and is considered a corruption of the Gilyak word. When Mr. Collins descended, in 1857, the natives near Igum did not or would not understand him when he spoke of the Amur. They called the river Sakhalin, a name which the Russians gave to the Long Island at the mouth of the Amur. As the Mongolian maps do not reach the outside world I presume the Russian names are most likely to endure with geographers. The upper part of the defile of the Berry Mountains is wider and has more meadows than the lower portion. On one of these meadows, where there is a considerable extent of arable land, we found the village of Radevsky, named in honor of the naturalist Reddy, who explored this region. The resources here were excellent, if I may judge by the quantity and quality of edibles offered to our schoolward. The people of both sexes flocked to the landing with vegetables, bread, chickens, butter, and other good things in much larger quantity than we desired. There was a liberal supply of pigs and chickens with many wild geese and ducks. We bought a pig and kept him on board three or four days. He squealed without cessation, until our captain considered him a bore, and ordered him killed and roasted. Pigs were generally carried in bags or in the arms of their owners. One day a woman brought a 30-pound pig suspended over her shoulder. The noise and kicking of the brute did not disturb her, and she held him as unconcernedly as if he were an infant, finding no market for her property. She turned it loose and allowed it to take its own way home. Milk was almost invariably brought in bottles, and eggs in boxes or baskets. Eggs were sold by the dizing ten, and not as with us by the dozen. At Radevsky several kinds of berries were offered us, but only the blackberry and whirlberry were familiar to my eyes. One berry, of which I vainly tried to catch the Russian name, was of oblong shape, three-fourths an inch in length, and had the taste of a sweet grape. It was said to grow on a climbing vine. Cedar nuts were offered in large quantities, but I did not purchase. Here, as elsewhere on the lower Amur, men and women labor together in the fields and engage equally in marketing at the boats. I was much amused in watching the commercial transactions between the peasants and our schoolward. I could not understand what was said, but the conversation in loud tones and with many words had much the appearance of an altercation. Several times I looked around expecting to see blows, but the excitement was confined to the vocal organs alone. The passage of the Amur through the Berry Mountains is nearly a hundred miles in length. Toward the upper end the mountains are more precipitous and a few peaks rise high above the others, like the Sentinels in Yosemite Valley. The last cliff before one reaches the level country is known as Capes Fairbeth, a bold promontory that projects into the river and is nearly a thousand feet high. Not far from this cliff is a flat-topped mountain remarkable for several crevices on its northern side, from which currents of cold air steadily issue. Ice forms around these fissures in midsummer, and a thermometer suspended in one of them fell in an hour to 30 degrees Fahrenheit. An hour after passing the mountains I saw a dozen conical huts on the Chinese shore and a few dusky natives lounging in front of them. They reminded me of the lodges of our noble red men as I saw them west of the Missouri several years before. Instead of being Cheyennes or Sioux they proved to be Myers, 
a tribe of wandering Dungus who inhabit this region. Their dwellings were of light poles covered with birch bark. One of the native gentlemen was near the bank of the river in the attitude of an orator, but not properly dressed for a public occasion. His only garments were a hat and a string of beads, and he was accompanied by a couple of young ladies in the same picturesque costume, minus the hat and beads. These Dungusians lead a nomadic life. Above the mouth of the Zaya there are two other tribes of similar character, the Managres and Orokons. The principal difference between them is that the former keep the horse and the latter the reindeer. The Myers have no beasts of burden except a very few horses. None of these people live in permanent houses, but move about wherever attracted by fishing or the chase. During spring and summer they generally live on the banks of the river, where they catch and cure fish. Their scaffoldings and storehouses were alike those of the natives already described, and during their migrations are left without guards and universally respected. Their fish are dried for winter use, and they sell the roe of the sturgeon to the Russians for making caviar. My first acquaintance with caviar was at Nikolaevsk, and I soon learned it to like it. It is generally eaten with bread, and forms an important ingredient in the Russian lunch. On the Volga its preparation engages a great many men and the caviar from that river is found through the whole empire. Along the Amor the business is in its infancy, the production thus far being for local consumption. I think if some enterprising American would establish the preparation of caviar on the Hudson where the sturgeon is abundant, he could make a handsome profit in shipping it to Russia. The roe is taken from the fish and carefully washed. The membrane that holds the eggs together is then broken, and after a second washing the substance is ready for salting. One kind for long carriage and preservation is partially dried and then packed and sealed in tin cans. The other is put in kegs, without pressing, and cannot be kept a long time. In the autumn and winter the natives are hunters. They chase elk and deer for their flesh, and sables, martens, and squirrels for their furs. Squirrels are especially abundant, and a good hunter will frequently kill a thousand in a single season. The Siberian squirrel of commerce comes from this region by way of Irkutsk and St. Petersburg. The natives hunt the bear and are occasionally hunted by him. At one landing a mirror exhibited an elk skin which he wished to exchange for tobacco, and was quite delighted when I gave him a small quantity of the latter. He showed me a scar on his arm where a bear had bitten him two or three years before. The marks of the teeth in the places where the flesh was torn could be easily seen but I was unable to learn the particulars of his adventure. These Dungusians are rather small in stature, and their arms and legs are thin, their features are broad, their mouths large and lips narrow, and their hair is black and smooth, the men having very little beard, their clothing is of the skins of elk and deer, with some garments of cotton cloth of Chinese manufacture. Most of the men I saw wore a belt at the waist, to which several articles of daily use were attached. At each Russian settlement above the mountains I observed a large post painted in the official colors and supporting a board inscribed with the name of the village. It was fixed close to the landing place, and evidently designed for the convenience of strangers. One of my exercises in learning the language of the country was to spell the names on these signs. I found I could usually spell much faster if I knew beforehand the name of a village. It was like having a bonds translation of a Latin exercise. At the village of Inyakantif I saw the first modern fortification since leaving Nikolaevsk. A simple lunette without cannon but with several hundred cannon shot somewhat rusty with age. The governor of this village was a prince by title, and evidently controlled his subjects very well. I saw Madame the Princess, but did not have the pleasure of her acquaintance.
She was dressed in a costume of which crinoline, silk, and ribbons were component parts, contrasting sharply with the coarse garments of the peasant women. This village had recently sold a large quantity of wheat and rye to the government. It had the best church I had seen since leaving Nikolaevsk, and its general appearance was prosperous. Among the women that came to the boat was one who recognized Borstein as an old acquaintance. She hastened back to her house and brought him two loaves of bread made from wheat of that year's growth. As a token of friendship he gave her a piece of sugar weighing a pound or two and a glass of bad brandy that brought many tears to her eyes. I think she was at least fifteen minutes drinking the fiery liquid, which she sipped as one would take a compound of cayenne pepper and boiling water. The worst tanglefoot or forty rod from Cincinnati or St. Louis would have been nectar by the side of that brandy. The country for a hundred miles or more above the Berry Mountains was generally level. Here and there were hills and ridges, and in the background on the south a few mountains were visible. There were many islands which, with the banks of alluvium, were evidently cut by the river in high freshets. Where the beach sloped to the water there was a little driftwood, and I could see occasional logs resting upon islands and sandbars. When taken in a tumbler the water of the Amor appeared perfectly clear but in the river it had a brownish tinge, there were no snags and no floating timber, I never fancied an iron boat for river travel owing to the ease of puncturing it, on the Mississippi or Missouri it would be far from safe, but on the Amor there are fewer perils of navigation, more boats have been lost there from carelessness or ignorance than from accidents really unavoidable, the Amor is much like what the Mississippi would be with all its snags removed and its channel made permanent, while among the islands I saw a small flotilla of boats in line across a channel, and after watching them through a glass discovered they were hauling a net. There were ten or twelve summer huts on the point of an island, and the boats were at least twice as many. A dozen men on shore were hauling a net that appeared well filled with fish. I do not think a single native looked up as we passed. Possibly they have a rule there not to attend to outside matters when exercising their professions. Chapter XVII the second day above the mountains we passed a region of wide prairie stretching far to the north and bearing a dense growth of rank grass and bushes, with a few clumps of trees. On the Chinese side there were hills that sloped gently to the river's edge or left a strip of meadow between them and the water. Many hills were covered with a thin forest of oaks and very little underbrush. At a distance the ground appeared as if carefully trimmed for occupation, especially as it had a few open places like fields. In the sear and yellow leaf of autumn these groves were charming, and I presume they are equally so in the fresh verdure of summer. If by some magic the Amor could be transferred to America, and change its mouth from the Gulf of Tartary to the Bay of New York, a multitude of fine mansions would soon rise on its banks. Among the islands that stud this portion of the river we passed the steamer Constantine with two barges in tow. She left Nikolaevsk twelve days before us, and her impediments made her journey a slow one. Her barges were laden with material for the Amor Telegraph, then under construction. About the same time we met the Nikolai towing a barge with a quantity of cattle destined for the garrison at the mouth of the river. The Nikolai was the property of a merchant Mr. Ludorf at Nikolaevsk, the village of Poyarkov, where we stopped for wood, impressed me very favorably. It was carefully laid out, and its single street had a wide and deep ditch on each side, crossed by little bridges. The houses were well built and had an air of neatness, while all the fences were substantial. Very few persons visited the boat, most of the inhabitants being at work in the fields. We walked through the settlement, 
and were shown specimens of wheat and rye grown in the vicinity. Four or five men, directed by a priest, were building a church, and two others were cutting plank nearby with a primitive up and down saw. The officer controlling the village was temporarily absent with the farm laborers. All around there were proofs of his energy and industry. This village was one of the military colonies of the province of the Amur. When in proper hands the military settlement is preferable to any other, as the men are more accustomed to obeying orders and work in greater harmony than the peasants. What is most needed is an efficient and energetic chief to each village, who has and deserves the confidence of his people, with enough of the fortitude to repress any developments of laziness and prevent intemperance. Such a man can do much for the government and himself. If his imperial majesty will take nine-tenths of his present military force on the Amur, place it in villages, allow the men to send for their families, and put the villages in the hands of proper chiefs under a general superintendent. He will take a long step toward making the new region self-sustaining. We have ample proof in America that an army is an expensive luxury, and the cost of maintaining it is proportioned to its strength. The verb to soldier has a double meaning in English, and will bear translation. On distant stations like the Amur, the military force could be safely reduced to a small figure in time of peace. Less play and more work would be better for the country and the men. As we proceeded up the river there was another change of the native population. The tents of the Myers disappeared, and we entered the region of the Mangers and Chinese. The captain called my attention to the first Manger village we passed. The dwellings were one story high, their walls being of wood with a plastering of mud. The chimneys were on the outside like those of the golds already described, and the roofs of the houses were thatched with straw. The manger villages are noticeable for the gardens in and around them. Each house that I saw had a vegetable garden that appeared well cultivated. In the corner of nearly every garden I observed a small building like a sentry box. In some doubt as to its use, I asked information of my Russian friends and learned it was a temple where the family idols are kept and the owners go to offer their prayers. Near each village was a grove which enclosed a public temple on the plan of a church in civilized countries. The temple was generally a square house, built with more care and neatness than the private dwellings. On entering, one found himself in a kind of anti-room, separated from the main apartment by a pink curtain. This curtain has religious inscriptions in Chinese and Manjur. In the inner apartment there are pictures of Chinese deities, with a few hideous idols carved in wood. A table in front of the pictures receives the offerings of worshippers. The managers appear very fond of surrounding their temples with trees, and this is particularly noticeable on account of the scarcity of wood in this region. Timber comes from points higher up the Amur, where it is cut and rafted down. Small trees and bushes are used as fuel and always with the strictest economy. The grove around the temple is held sacred, as among the druids in England, and I presume a native would suffer long from cold before cutting a consecrated tree. Along the river near the first village several boats were moored or drawn on the bank out of reach of the water. A few men and women stood looking at us, and some of them shouted Menda when we were directly opposite their position. Of course we returned their salutation, and like the aboriginals lower down the river, the managers till the soil and make it their chief dependence. I saw many fields where the grain was uncut, and others where it had been reaped and stacked. The stacks were so numerous in proportion to the population that there must be a large surplus each year. Evidently there is no part of the Amor Valley more fertile than this. Horses and cattle were grazing in the meadows and looked up as we steamed along. We passed a dozen horses drinking from the river, 
and set them scampering with our whistle. The horse is used here for carrying light loads, but with heavy burdens the ox finds preference. Along the Chinese shore I frequently saw clumsy carts moving at a snail-like pace between the villages. Each cart had its wheels fixed on an axle that generally turned with them. Frequently there was a lack of grease, and the screeching of the vehicle was rather unpleasant to tender nerves. Near the village we met a manger boat, evidently the property of a merchant. The difference between going with and against the current was apparent by comparing the progress of this boat with the one I saw in the Berry Mountains. One struggled laboriously against the stream, but the other had nothing to do beyond keeping where the water ran swiftest. This one carried a small flag, and was deeply laden with merchandise. The crew was dozing and the man at the helm did not appear more than half awake. Villages were passed in rapid succession, and the density of the population was in agreeable contrast to the desolation of many parts of the lower Andor. It was a panorama of houses, temples, groves, and fields, with a surrounding of rich meadows and gentle hills. There was a range of low mountains in the background, but on the Russian shore the flat prairie continued. In the middle of the afternoon we passed the town of Yatiyokazu, situated on the Chinese shore where the river makes a bend toward the north and east. It had nothing of special interest, but its gardens were more extensive and more numerous than in the villages below. Just above it there was a bay forming a neat harbor containing several boats and barges. When the Chinese controlled the Anor they occupied this bay as a dockyard and naval station. Had my visit been 10 or 12 years earlier I should have seen several war junks entered here. When the Russians obtained the river the Chinese transferred their navy to the Songari. From this ancient navy yard the villages stretched in a nearly continuous line along the southern bank, and were quite frequent on the northern one. We saw three manger women picking berries on the Russian shore. One carried a baby over her shoulders much af.